I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a special Minnesota Now Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. What is muscle memory? We know it when we experience it, that sense of fluid movement drawn up from somewhere deep in the body. John Bargard possesses powerful muscle memory of his days as a ski jumper, even as the memories that inhabit his mind will soon vanish. He's the central character in Peter Guy's new novel, and he is reckoning with a powerful secret from the past and a future that is dimming. Peter Guy writes and lives here in the Twin Cities. He's the author of novels that include wintering. And his new novel is titled The Ski Jumpers. Peter, it is a delight to talk to you again. How have you been? Well, Carrie, how about you? Really good. Good to have you back on the show. Yeah, um, thanks so much. I don't usually do this, but I want to ask you to read this these remarkable paragraphs that open the book and I think are going to open a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. So would you open your book to page one and just read that series of of paragraphs that really helps us understand how John is experiencing these memories of being a ski jumper? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks. So this is from a chapter titled Dream Memory, The Thing Itself. Even now, almost four decades since your last jump, you're ecstatic in flight. The memory is as indelible in your mind as it is in your old and softening body, which still, all these years later, will tremor you from sleep and dreams and go taut as though into the cold winter air above some steep snow-covered landing hill. There in bed, under the soft down, you cock your ankles and lift your chin and rudder your hands as you close your eyes and pull back into the dream. And though, of course, there's no rush of air, no danger, the thrill remains. So does the peace. And it's into that peace you alight. Most mornings you'll coke a minute or two in the air. First you find the hollowing sensation that comes with the leap itself. It was then, as it remains now, the surest sign of a good jump. You're lighter. You're empty of inhibitions. And it compels you forward, your hips following the emptiness and grace, a twitch of one shoulder, then the other as you accelerate, as the world simplifies. Just you and the air and the landing hill below. There's no concentrating now, only divination. Only weightlessness and yearning, and for as fast as it always happened, timelessness. You know, there is something so essentially Minnesotan about that scene, <laughs> because, you know, it's happening in the snow, and oh, you can feel the ice in the air and and the cold. But you've also managed to capture this feel of remembrance you know, what it was like to have an experience, but not be in the moment of the experience. So I've got a lot of questions about it. The first is, were these paragraphs always going to open the novel? Or did you did you write them and think, but that is where the story begins, but perhaps they were going to go somewhere else? It is uh, a true story that of the books that I've written so far, this one has been 
in me and in process the longest. I have notebooks for the ski jumpers going back to 2008 uh, when I didn't know very much about it, except that there were two brothers who were sort of uh, divvying out their past with each other and trying to reconcile something I didn't know what. And one of the reasons that this book was so hard to write and took as long as it did is because I didn't know who John was. I didn't know where his story would begin or what it would look like outside of his relationship with his brother. And so the answer to the question is no, the book didn't always begin there. But I will tell you that I wrote, uh, I wrote most of this book during, during COVID, uh, at, at the beginning of COVID, when it seemed like all of life was a dream. We were all just sitting in our living rooms or our, or our kitchens or, or, or laying in our beds wondering what in the world was happening. And that feeling of like, it's not life. We're just living in a dream right now informed that opening paragraph, it, uh, those opening paragraphs. It's also true that, uh, I mean, I'm a former ski jumper myself. Well, hopefully we'll get to talk oh, about yeah, that. Oh yeah, we'll at talk some about point that. Today. Um, but that, that feeling uh, that dream is and has been a feature of my life since I was 20 years old. I mean, going, you know, more than three decades now since I took my last jump. And I still have that dream that John has. And when I combine those two things, the, the fact that this is a big part of my life, the, these dreams, I mean, it sounds silly to say, but they are. They're a feature of my life and always have been. Uh, and the fact that, I, that, that this story sort of all came together at a time in our lives when things didn't feel very real. Uh, I think that I think that that's where it came from. Yeah, it's really interesting to realize now that you wrote these, these stories and these characters that experience th this exhilarating lift and freedom in this sport at a time when None of us really felt like that, right? Even if we were outside, I don't think we had that experience of exhilaration. We felt restricted and, you know, that we had to, that we had to be solitary. And, and here's this, here's this novel coming out of you at a moment when you're reaching for that and experiencing something very different in your life. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and it's it, it, it's a it's an apt description of the the experience of well of both things of writing the novel or writing so much of the novel uh, and and living through that time. I mean, one of the things that's true about this sport and the way that it, uh, it, it resides in me, my memories of it, and my own participation in it. Now, I mean, I have a son who's a, a a developing ski jumper hmm. and it's so joyful i mean my memories of it are so joyful and I, I have such great friendships that have been lifelong as a result of it and so many memories like i say in these dreams that are you know it's it's like <laughs> it's like a second self i have or something and there's so much joy in that and yet it is a lonely sport it is uh, and it was written at a very lonely time in life. You know, we didn't see our friends. We didn't uh, participate in the world. The ski jumps were shut down uh, as everything else was. Uh, and, and so, yes, it, it, those those things collide here for sure. Deep into the, into the book, um, the narrator reminds us, as you're alluding to right now, of how essentially 
solitary and introspective ski jumping is, even though it often takes place in the company of other competitors and spectators. I thought this was such an interesting description. You you describe it as a sport that demands the inward gaze. So tell me what you meant by that. And is there something that is particularly um, unique about ski jumping that really demands that that inward gaze as opposed to to other sports that might be solitary as well yeah i i don't know i mean most of my uh participation in athletics you know when i was a kid i did individual sports and i mean i was no great athlete i mean i I guess i was a pretty good ski jumper but i was not uh i was not as as good a ski jumper as john or anton are in this book uh but I, I tried. I tried very hard. And one of the things that I learned as a result of that trying is that most of what happens on a ski jump, the success or failure of a jump, the success or failure of a tournament or of a season, has about 90% to do with what you're thinking. Like by that point in time, I had the athletic ability, I had trained, I had the instincts, I understood the technique enough to know how to do it. It was just a question of whether or not I would do it. And that is where the inward gaze started. That is at the top of the jump, each time before I would pull out and into the track, I had to visualize and and, and kind of, uh, you know, very fine detail, often concentrating on very small adjustments. And that, you know, and and so then I would go and I would either do what I thought I should do or was supposed to do or not. As often as not, I didn't do it, which is probably a a good enough explanation as any for why I never achieved my goals, I guess. But that carries over then into my memories of it. And I think that because I spent, I, I, I can't tell you how many jumps I ever took, thousands of them, many thousands of ski jumps. And at the beginning of each one, there was this process of visualization mm-hmm. and imagination. And so I think when I look back on the sport or when I observe the sport now as a coach for young kids, I think of it as it's you the individual. Now mm-hmm. it's, you know, the little boy or the little girl at the top of the jump. And I'm telling them, I'm asking them to think about what they have to do. And that is nothing if not an inward gaze. And of course, I mean, in literary terms, so in the novel, there's so much inward Absolutely. gazing. John is, um, <laughs> John is a pretty introspective guy. And I think that I think that I resemble John in that way. You know, it's interesting that you came up with the ratio that you did the, you know, it's 10% physical, and it's 90% of of what you're thinking, because your novel inspired me to go in search of some of the really great ski jumpers in in history. And I came across Eddie the Eagle. I'm sure you know of him. (laughs) Yes. And and listen to this, Peter, this is what he says about what you've just described. Ski jumping is just 10% physical and 90% mental. Some people can't do that. It's not just the fear at the top. It takes 100 times more courage to jump off the end. That was a revelation for me, too. I thought you stand at the top and you look at that 
distance and you know what awaits at the at the bottom and think do i have the intestinal fortitude to do it he's saying no it's what happens at the bottom mm-hmm. what yeah. do you think I, I mean i think that that's largely true uh it, it's of course different for everyone and different as in all aspects of life different people participate in this sport and there are different uh different types of intestinal fortitude or mental makeup that go into it eddie the eagle is not a great ski jumper um he's he's probably the most famous ski jumper and (laughs) and 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 a delightful guy actually um knew him trained with him Ah. he was when he was he was kicking around the united states trying to learn how to be a ski jumper um but but I think that there is. I, I mean, here's the thing, and this happens all the time when I talk with people about ski jumping. You, when I say ski jumping, or I was a ski jumper, people think of those big Olympic-sized jumps and go, how in the world do you have the courage to do that? <laughs> right. And of course, you don't begin there. You start on these little tiny bumps where you're in the air for 10 or 20 feet, and then you go up to the next size hill where you're in the air for... 30 or 40 or 50 feet and then the next jump where you're in the air for 100 feet and onward until you're jumping 300 or 400 feet and by the time you're going off of those jumps there i mean i I jumped all the biggest jumps in the united states and in canada and i was never afraid unless the conditions unless the weather unless the wind was blowing the wrong way or the conditions were otherwise um you know, not, not optimal. I was not scared. I was not afraid. I was intent on my effort and Mm -hmm. intent on making the corrections that I needed to do. So it's not fear. Yes. You have to be a courageous person to do this sport. I would be lying if I said otherwise, my, my, um, my, my son, I mentioned is a ski jumper and he just took his first step up, uh, in hill size last week. And I remember, you know, and I was there and I watched him walk up the hill and now he's going off a jump, which is about half the size of an Olympic jump. And I was watching him and I was, I was afraid. I was nervous and I was afraid. And he took the jump and he came up and I, you know, he did great. And I told him that and asked him how it was. And I said, were you nervous? And he said, no. (laughs) So it's not. Chip off the old block. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know about that because I was. I was scared for him, uh-huh. but it's, it, it, it's such a strange sport because it, it is, it does take courage. But I think that by the time you're going off the big jumps, that courage is very much like the muscle memory itself. Mm-hmm. That is, it's just a part of the process. And there's, and, and I, anyway, and most of the people that I knew that ski jumped were, we were way more intent on our focus on improving on having a better jump than we were worried about the jump itself. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special Minnesota Now Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. I'm in conversation with Peter Guy. He lives and writes here in the Twin Cities. He's the author of a number of terrific novels, including Wintering, one of my favorites. But we're talking about his new novel, The Ski Jumpers, where he has uh, dug into the memory of learning to be a ski jumper himself. And now, as you hear, he is teaching his son how to do the sport. But in creating these characters for the novel, he's accessing that 
that spirit, that sensibility of what it means to hurtle down a hill and fly into the air and land. And he's managed to write these scenes that really give you that sense of what it's like in the body to do that. So, Peter, you said something interesting about the joyousness of of the sport. And then you, you mentioned that there was a time when you realized that for as many jumps as you've done around the country and as much as you were building your strength and your expertise, you just weren't going to make it to the top. So how old were you when you realized that? And then what effect did that have on your joy of the experience of jumping? This is a question that I've thought about a lot over the years, of course. it's it's It, it remains, I mean, I think this is true. It remains the biggest regret in my life that I quit ski jumping when I did. I was 19 years old, uh, just about to turn 20 years old when I took my last jump. I took my last jumps up at Ely. Uh, there used to be a jump in Ely, Minnesota, and the junior national championships were being held there. And I, I, uh, I took my last jump then, and and it was that season. So the summer and winter of, uh, I guess it would have been 1988 and 1989, that I that I realized well that I realized I wasn't having a very good season the year before I had had my best season and really, um, really thought that I was turning a, a corner with a sport, mm-hmm. uh, and then sort of regress. Now I can look back at that time in my life and, and, and I realize and recognize the, you know, the mistakes, not, not, not the mistakes in the sport, but the mistakes that I made in judgment about whether to continue or not. Uh, and I, and I was, I was tired. Uh, I was tired of training and of traveling and of, um, being broke all the time because it cost a fortune to do all of that. Uh, I had spent the, the summer of 1988 in the fall of that year living in Steamboat Springs, Colorado and training with the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club. And all those jumpers were so good and I just wasn't catching up. And, and yes, there was a, uh, I guess a lack of joy in my results, Mm -hmm. the sport itself never failed to be thrilling and never failed to be joyous in and of any given jump was a delight, at least as I remember it. Um, But I'll tell you this. I mentioned that it's one of the big regrets, Mm -hmm. big regrets that I have in my life. And, and this is, this is positively true. I think that if I had not quit ski jumping, if I hadn't learned what it felt like to have that regret, I would not have become a a writer because (laughs) there was so much rejection and so many reasons to feel discouraged. And I would tell myself in those moments of rejection and discouragement that I was not going to quit this like I quit ski jumping. And, you know, (laughs) for better or for worse, five novels later, it's that fortitude that I learned from ski jumping, from actually from my failure to ski jump that I think gave me the resolve to carry on through the rejection that I got in, in the early part of my writing life. You know, another commonality between the sport and your experience of it and writing occurred to me as we were talking about the inward gaze. I mean, as we've said, there is a solitariness and a turning inward um, as, as you're becoming a ski jumper and engaging in the sport. It's not that different from 
writing, isn't it? Don't you live mostly with your inward gaze when you're in the experience of writing? Positively. Most writers, I think certainly most writers I know, have that, you know, introspective quality to their personality, right? We like to talk with each other, but mostly we like to sit at our desk and do our work. And and I think that that's true. But while writing, that is when you're in the throes of writing a novel, or at least when I'm in the throes of writing a novel, that inward gaze is so intense as to sometimes be disorienting. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are days when I wake up and get to work and can't remember what is happening in the book I'm writing versus what's happening in real life. That is, you know, uh, is the, is it the character that I'm writing about who's feeling a certain way or is it me that's feeling a certain way? Maybe it doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, right. Uh, Yeah, I guess it doesn't for all intents and purposes, but it is, it is the very, uh, I mean, it's, it's beyond an inward gaze, actually. It's almost like a um, the act of becoming another. Like mm. you're, you're gazing past yourself and into someone else who's only inside of you or inside of your mind and imagination, which is a thing that I love. I love that, that, that vicarious experience that I get living through my characters. Um, but it is, yes, it is, it is exactly the same as the inward gaze. So, so when you are accessing your own experiences. And I don't know how often this happens when you're writing a novel, but I mean, for this one, there is a lot of autobiographical experience in this. So how does that change the shape of the inward gaze? Yeah, it's the first book that I've written, or at least the first book since my debut novel, which, you know, is, uh, you know, came out 12 years ago, that, that I do uh, call on some of my own experience. And I've taken, I mean, it's it's different. It's certainly, uh, uh, I don't want to say unique because it's not unique, but it's, it, it's a different experience to try to conjure my own memories mm-hmm. and to try to use those memories to generate drama, mm-hmm. to create <laughs> dramatic tension, to create uh, character evolution and character arc. And on the one hand, I want to be true to those memories, such as they are, as re- you know, reliable or unreliable as they may be. Um, but also, I have to be mindful of the story that I'm writing and the story that I want the reader to experience, which is not necessarily my own experience. And, and I think it's one of the reasons that it took me so long to write this book is that I was constantly at odds about, well, that's not how it happened, so I, I can't use it. And it's silly. Of course, of course, I can. I I mean, I lie for a living. I love to say that (laughs) I can lie about any of it. And I ended up lying an awful lot. But at its essence, the ski jumping parts of the story are, are, are my are my very own and most personal and most vivid and sacred memories, many of them. One of the things that, and I think I've mentioned this, that I found really impressive about the novel are the different ways that you found to express what it is like to experience a ski jump. At one point, the father, Pops, describes what it's like to land a jump. And he says, it's like glass shattering. All the silence and stillness go away. There there are probably, I don't know, seven different scenes where you've reached for these beautiful 
um, similes, metaphors, expressions to tell us what it's like to be in the midst of this experience. And I have to say, Peter, every single one of them I thought was, it felt like you were really at the top of your game. I mean, there wasn't, all right, this is the sixth time I'm going to describe this and <laughs> you know, I'm going to fall back on. I mean, I, I was really curious about how every time you came to that moment in the writing of what this is like to live this, you know, the actual moment, um, how you found new ways to describe it. One of the one of one of my secrets, Carrie, on, on this account at least, is that if there are six or seven of them now, and I think that sounds about right, yeah. uh, the first time I pressed the end, there were probably thirty six or thirty seven. <laughs> oh of my them. gosh! What? Okay, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. But it, but but it's it's true that it's a it's a process of distillation for sure for me, and this is true whether I'm writing about ski jumping or anything that's important in a book. Um, subject-wise, that they're they're usually and they you know uh, upon completion, uh, you know upon a first or a second draft, there's way more than there needs to be, and that was certainly true with the ski jumpers. Uh, there was there was so much of it, and I knew there was too much, and I knew that I that it had to be distilled. But that's just a part of the process. I mean, listen, I uh, not only do I dream this stuff. <laughs> Uh, not only did I live this stuff as a child and I'm watching it be lived again now in, in, in my son and the other kids in the in the junior program out at, out at Bush Lake, um, but I think about it all the time. It's embarrassing. I mean, if, if there were one of those uh, mind reader <laughs> trackers on me, it would, I would be embarrassed how much I think about it and, 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 and remember, yes, but also just kind of marvel at and participate in uh through watching the great ski jumpers in the world i i watch it like a lot of people watch the minnesota vikings you huh. know i'll get get up in the morning on winter weekends and see what's happening in the world cup um and so so i've been telling myself the story of ski jumping and trying to describe it to myself or describe it to others for my whole life i mean truly for from the time i was a conscious being Hmm. Seven years old I was when I started. Uh, I've been trying to describe this to people. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with those passages. But there's another, I mean, there's a craft element to it too, of course. And and for me, when I got to those moments that I thought required that kind of description, that kind of care in the metaphor, uh, it's it's a, it's a labor. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm mindful of and deliberate about, uh, you know, right down to the periods and commas and M dashes and sentences to, you know, the, the, the very specific words, I treat those passages like I'm writing a poem. Hmm. And, hmm. and 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 deliberate about that. I mean, that's one of the qualities that I aspired to in the writing of this book was that kind of description. And so I'm delighted that they that they struck you. I certainly tried hard. Yeah, there is no as a reader, and I'm sure you know this. There is no sense. I, I don't have this feeling emanating off the page that this was labored over. So when you say. You worked it like a poem. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. In a way that, I mean, 
there are beautiful passages in your other novels. But would you say that this is one where, you know, you, you really did reach for that poetic sense or held yourself to that standard in a way that maybe you haven't felt like you had to, you know, in the language of some of the other novels? I think that that's true. I think one of the other things that distinguishes this book from the others, and we touched on it, is the, is how personal it is. And, you know, like you, you mentioned wintering earlier, and though I'm, you know, uh, uh, love to be in the wilderness and love to be up in the Boundary Waters and the part of the world that I've written about and that I wrote about in that book, and uh, certainly see the the poetry in that landscape and in in the in the in the seasons and the weather and all of that sort of thing. It's not my religion. Uh, ski jumping is as close as I mean, writing and ski jumping are the two things that I come close to with religion. I think that that's probably uh, why the observation that you've just made is true. Um, because it is, it is so personal and it is something that my entire life, as I say, I've, I've been trying to describe it. And this was my chance to, to, to maybe get it out of my system. Maybe I'll stop doing that now. <laughs> Peter Guy is with me. I'm Carrie Miller and we're having a conversation about his new novel, The Ski Jumpers. It's a special Minnesota Now, Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show where readers meet writers. I'm so glad you went down this path of of uh, kind of spirituality and and theology, because I've been reading Karn Armstrong's new book about nature and the sacredness of nature. This is something I think we've touched on when we've talked before, but we've never gone fully into it. So I want to do that. I I sense an almost well a spiritual bent, maybe an almost religious bent to the way you experience nature and having read Karn Armstrong about this I now I now understand how many sacred texts um lift that up and tell us what that means in a way that I don't think a lot of us understand so so I'd like to know what you what you make of that what you make of that question I mean it's it's I I guess the first thing that I would say is it's a question that I'm constantly, and this is true in life and in my writing life, not that those two things are so far apart, but uh, that I'm constantly at odds with myself about, or maybe that's the wrong expression, constantly trying to sort out Hmm. in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that I write about it so much. Uh, The fact that I've yet not yet been able to get it sorted is something that is at once, I, I I guess I would describe it as kind of frustrating, but also I'm actually grateful for it because it allows me so much time to pursue the question. And I think that, it, I mean, I don't think, it certainly has been one of my ambitions in the books that I've written to grapple with those questions in different ways. And I keep speaking generally about those questions. And what I mean when I think about this is, uh, are things like, um, what does my existence mean in the scope of the, the physical world that we inhabit? What does the physical world mean in contrast to my own existence and our existence as human beings in the same place, 
in the same atmosphere on the same earth among the same trees and in the same water, that sort of question. Uh, and is it possible to live a more meaningful life as a consequence of the pondering that goes on in those moments, or is it a fool's errand? And I think I've, uh, I, I, I've tried, I've tried on both answers, uh, via my characters and luckily, I mean, I, I mean this sincerely. Luckily, no one has given me an answer yet. So I'm just going to keep writing about it until I figure it out. I don't expect that I'm going to, uh, but I'm going to keep writing about it in the hopes that, I don't know, either it gets, something crystallizes or, uh, or I finally just give up and accept that I'm never going to have that answer. I mean, there there are so many dimensions to the questions that you're asking. I really can't imagine that you're ever going to resolve it to your satisfaction because you are asking some of the biggest questions that humans ask themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, I aspire to. Let's, <laughs> let's say that. When topics like this come up, uh, I feel so ill-equipped <laughs> to answer them because of the impossibility of their answers, right? Like, um, you know, the great theologians, the great philosophers, the great scientists, most of them were way better at asking questions than at answering them. <laughs> and right. I don't, I'm not putting myself in that same category. Please let me be frank about that. But I, I, um, I love, I love the conundrum and that conundrum those conundrums, I guess I should say, fall into my work. And there's a, a great span between the conversation that I'm having right now with you mm -hmm. or the conversation that I have with readers when I go to libraries or bookstores or book clubs and engage in this sort of conversation, a conversation that I love, absolutely positively love, there's a great span between those conversations and me on a Tuesday morning sitting at my desk <laughs> with my pen and paper. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, maybe it's a bad analogy, but it's the difference between going to church and praying. Mm. And it's been a long time since I did either of those things. Uh, but I was raised on it. What, what, what faith were you raised in? I was raised in the Catholic Church. Okay. See, yeah. I would have guessed Lutheran for some reason. So, well, you're a native Minnesotan. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and you do not attend church anymore? I don't, but I do think of it. And I, don't, again, don't mean to sound grandiose, but I talk about this with my students all the time. I think that for me, my faith and my spirituality and the the questions that I'm asking myself about life, which I ask regularly— even when I'm not writing a novel, mm -hmm. um, are informed by the work that I do as a novelist. And, and, and my dedication to the craft, yes, and the labor of writing, yes, but also the questions that are at the root of it, that, that's, that's my church now. Mm -hmm. um, the other plot of the novel it, it is this 35-year very happy marriage between John, one of the central characters, and Ingrid, and the diagnosis that we learn about early on in the novel is that John has gotten of early onset Alzheimer's. 
And much of the novel is John gathering the courage to tell his wife about this secret in his past. And he feels some urgency because he knows that the memory will slip away and now is the time if he's going to do it to tell her. So what's interesting, I think, about the way you you wrote into the different times, time spans in the novel is the perspective. I, I guess I want to know whether the perspective of the novel was always going to be retrospective. And of course, that's why this plot element of he's going to lose his memory and now he is immersed in those memories. Or did you it's such a dramatic story, too. I wondered if you considered letting it unfold in real time. It is. Uh, it's it's true that the story of John and Ingrid's marriage was the last, and how to say it, uh, the the last part of the novel to come to me, and the one I'm most grateful for. Mm. And the reason that I'm so grateful for it is because. Well, a couple of reasons. One, that you describe it as a very happy marriage, which is exactly how I described it to myself, the story of a happy marriage, which is not something that I've written about much in my life. Um, and I wanted I, I wanted the contrast between the unhappiness of John's uh, nuclear family, his his brother and his father and his mother and the mess that they've all made of their lives to have a contrast, to have a, a, a counterpoint and to have um, and, and to have John landed in a place that's OK now, even if what reconciliation he hopes will happen with his mother and with his brother and with his uh, father doesn't, that he's okay. I wanted that for John. And I mean, was it always going to be retrospective? I think the answer to that is yes. Mm. And part of the reason that that's true is because this is a story, even John's even the story of John's happy marriage is a story of the backward gaze. We've talked plenty about the inward gaze, but it's also the backward gaze and looking at how the accumulation of one's life adds up to where we are and where John is on the morning that the novel opens and the day that we spend with him throughout the book, he and Ingrid on his way to visit their daughter with this diagnosis freshly in pocket is the process of untangling for John untangling the steps that have led to that moment which requires that backward gaze which requires um memory which he's not going to have for much longer and that that uh uh diagnosis of of early onset alzheimers um is the is the is the impetus for his action on this day and, his, and the impetus to finally, for his own sake and for Ingrid's, to to tell the truth about his life, something he's he's not really done, mm-hmm. even to himself. And I think that so many of us live our lives this way. You know, of course, we all have regrets and of course, we've all made mistakes and and had lapses and errors and judgment. And all of those things are inevitably true. And there's hardly a, a, a anything interesting about it. 
it's the people that confront those things that I think uh, are 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 interesting, are more interesting. And you, uh, you, of course, you don't always find the closure that you want or or the answers that you seek. But again, if you're not asking the questions, you don't even run the risk of possibility of finding the answers. You know what else is interesting about this is, um, and and I just had an experience with this with in my own family the story that you think you're telling about your life can sound very different to the person who's receiving it and and of course john knows this he that's part of what he fears uh about telling ingrid as much as she loves him and, and as generous and empathetic as she is but i i just had an experience with this where my husband told me a story from his childhood and his take about what it meant was so different than my take that we ended up having an hour-long conversation about why he didn't experience it the way, you know, I would have, the way I thought was very obvious that you would have experienced it. And and I think that's something that we we all go through at a certain taking stock point in your life. What would this story look like to someone else, even the people that love me most? I'm so glad that you said the people that love me most, because what it sounds like, what that hour long conversation that you and your husband had sounds like to me is love. And we talked just a few minutes ago about the the big questions at the root of all of my work mm-hmm. at, at, at the core of these novels that I've written. And if there's not an answer to the questions, there is at least in my estimation, a, uh, a, a consequence to the life that we live, the lives that we live. And it's either to love and be loved or not to that to me, like, uh, this is not, I mean, I have not described this to, to anyone ever, but this is, this is what comes of those questions, mm-hmm. what it means to be alive, what yeah. it means to be in the physical world and to observe nature and all its glory, what, what it means, honestly, to go down a ski jump and, and later to try to describe that to someone or to explain to someone how much that means to you. Uh, that's, that's, a, it's a kind of love. Mm-hmm. If we do that generously, it's a kind of love. And certainly that's what John is worried about is that he has not loved Ingrid well enough. He has kept this, this enormous secret and we won't give the secret away, but this enormous secret from her. And he feels terrible about it for all sorts of reasons, mostly because he feels like it's been a betrayal of his love for her. And and that's a that's tough. I mean, that's a tough thing to 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 experience. Certainly, uh, I'm not the I, I don't have the sorts of secrets that John has, but I've I've felt that betrayal, a, a similar type of betrayal. I've uh, even if they're much more minor, often enough in life to know that it's a terrible feeling, mm-hmm. and 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 certainly that is. That is as much as the diagnosis itself is what's driving John to this, 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 whatever it is, confession, this, uh, 
this truth. I mean, some of this is also, I, and this can happen in a long marriage, which is why I want to ask you if you're going to continue to write about marriage, because it's such an interesting subject. Um, you know, you might open a door to to your childhood, to something that was deeply influential in shaping the person you are. And you think about it, and and this is the story of what that meant and who I am. And then the person who's receiving that story, hopefully with the kind of generous love we've been talking about, says, well, that answers a lot. You know, that solves some mysteries here. What's remarkable to me about that is I think that can happen throughout the arc of a very long marriage, not just in the early years of a relationship. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true. And it's interesting to me, oh, and how to how to talk about this. I mean, I was married for 20 some years and then divorced and um, have have remarried. So I feel like I have um well you know mul- multiple uh perspectives mm-hmm. on this um and i won't i won't go into any sort of detail about the different types of love i've experienced except to say that i understand it now in a way that i couldn't possibly have understood it if i'd if, if i hadn't uh, made the choice that I've made. Hmm. And and it's true, not just, I might be quick to add, not just with respect to my spouse, but with respect to uh, the sort of love and affection and attention that I give my children, which is very, I feel uh, like I've just sliced myself open here. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's, it's that understanding that came to me at the, at the desk each mo- came with me to the desk each morning as I wrote this story and what John is dealing with. Now John is in 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 a very long marriage, um, but his his relationship and it's not just with Ingrid, although of course it's mostly with her, but also with his own children right. and the prospect of their lives with the absence of him, which is something that baffles him and terrifies him, uh, and that too uh, comes, comes straight from the, from the vivisected (laughs) chest (laughs) that I've got going on here. Uh, let me ask you one impertinent, another impertinent personal question here. Do you think, and we, we've talked at length about your interest in the fathers and sons and parents and children's relationships, and you're writing about that. Do you think there is a reason that this is really the first time you've delved the way you have into the intricacies of of a marriage. And is, does that have something to do with your divorce? You know, it does. Uh, and you have just uh, s- stitched me up. <laughs> you, you, you put a, a light right on this thing. I think that the reason that this novel is, uh, as much as it is about marriage and not about parenthood, uh, though there is, of course, that is because I am so at peace as a father, uh, personally, and uh, I never was. I never was until, let's say, the last five years or so, um, at peace as a father. 
And I have my suspicions for why that's true, uh, none of which I'll talk about. But, uh, but, but yes, it makes po- perfect sense now that I would, I, that I wouldn't feel the need to write about that. I wouldn't feel the need to understand better or in some vicarious way what it means to be a father and what it means to be a son or what it means to be a parent and a child because I'm at peace with that myself right now. So do you feel like that peacefulness means you feel prepared to write more deeply about marriage? I mean, has some, has some uh, seal been broken here with this novel? You're, you're, uh, this is better than therapy. I mean, because I, I, (laughs) I, I'm of course writing, um, another novel and it is it is a novel of a uh among other things but the two main characters are in a in an arranged marriage or an essentially arranged marriage and what that looks like and now i'm going way outside of my own experience in this um but the conversations that they have it is not i might I might add um, a happy marriage. Um, the arranged marriage, you mean? The arranged marriage, uh-huh. yes. Um, but it's so much fun to grapple with questions that I feel uh, a, a kind of like freedom. I'm doing a little dance as I sit here right now, like a, a freedom in exploring. And I don't know that I would have felt that way um, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. What What I think I hear you saying is... You have a kind of confidence and I don't I was gonna say certainty, but no, a, a confidence that this is a place you can now go to. Is that right? I, I think that that's true. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have I mean maybe I would have had that realization, but it wouldn't have been for ten years or something like that. Um so thank you, first of all. But also, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And it's fun. I mean, it's fun. It's it's and Fun sounds like such a cheap word, and I guess it is, but it's also just true to be able to go into a story like the one that I'm writing now, where these two characters can act so strangely and so far outside of my own um, experience and behavior and and treat each other the way that they do and learn the things that they do from each other. It's um, it's a different kind of of book that I'm writing and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Incidentally, uh, it's the, the title of the book is the title of the book that John last published in the ski jumpers. Uh Oh, you're testing me. And I don't remember. (laughs) Uh Oh, clever little, little code, little Easter egg there inside the novel. Peter guys, new novel is titled the ski jumpers. I'm Carrie Miller. This has been a special Minnesota Now Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show where readers meet writers. Peter, it is always such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie.